Welcome to the Independent News Hour. In the headlines today, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell belatedly denounces belief of the QAnon conspiracy theory among Congress's ranks. Special election for City Council District 24 in Eastern Queens continues until 9 p.m. And former DACA recipient Javier Castillo Maradiaga faces deportation in the Bronx. In New York, I'm Olivia Reggio with the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. I'm filling in this week for John Tarleton, the Indies editor-in-chief. A group of 10 Republican senators met with President Biden today at the White House to discuss their $618 billion counteroffer to Democrats' $1.9 trillion COVID relief package. There wasn't much compromise, but Democrats are ready to move forward without Republican support. Congress took its first votes today on the path towards passing the $1.9 trillion package through a budget resolution, the first step in the budget reconciliation process. This process would allow Democrats to pass budget-related legislation with just a simple majority of 51 votes in the Senate rather than the usual 60. In an interview with CNN's Anderson Cooper, Senate Budget Committee Chairman Bernie Sanders pointed out that Republicans used the budget reconciliation in 2017 to pass tax cuts for the rich. But somehow or another, when it comes to feeding children who are hungry, when it comes to making sure that people who are sick in the middle of a pandemic get the health care they need, when it comes to reopening our schools in a safe way, expanding the child tax credit, so we deal with the horrendous level of child poverty in this country, when it comes to those things, suddenly my Republican uh, colleagues become very fervent uh, about the deficit. One group of people struggling to get government assistance during this time are sex workers. Later, we'll talk with sex worker and advocate Molly Simmons, who is working with the Sex Workers Outreach Program in Brooklyn to provide mutual aid to struggling sex workers during the pandemic. Meanwhile, in Congress, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is belatedly denouncing, quote, loony lies and conspiracy theories infiltrating the Republican Party. He called the embracing of the QAnon conspiracy theory the, quote, cancer of the Republican Party. He didn't mention Georgia Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, who openly embraces the QAnon theory in his statement, but she tweeted a response implying he is a, quote, weak Republican. Democrats are threatening a floor vote this week to oust her from the education Labor Committee and the Budget Committee of House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, a California Republican, does not remove her first. The QAnon, which started off as an anonymous note on 4chan, has snowballed across the American media landscape into this movement. That's indie contributor Nick Powers, who we'll talk to more later about QAnon, its anti-Semitic tactics, and the power of conspiracies. Voting today in special election for City Council District 24 in Eastern Queens continues until 9 p.m. The seat has been vacant since last fall, and eight candidates are running in the first New York City election to be determined by ranked choice voting, which allows voters to choose and rank up to five candidates in order of preference. Top contenders are former three-term City Council member Jim Gennaro and community organizer Momita Ahmed, who has received a slew of progressive endorsements, including one on Monday from Bernie Sanders. But Ahmed has also been hit with attack ads by New Yorkers for Common Sense, which is funded by a group of New York City real estate tycoons who oppose her socialist policies. The group has spent more than $221,000 on this campaign. Here's Ahmed today on the significance of ranked choice voting and why it may help progressive candidates like her. People tend to not vote for the aspirational candidates because they think, you know, uh, it's, uh, they don't have a chance. Versus under ranked choice voting, those second votes are going to matter. We're seeing it already. We're seeing people who are like, you know, I'm voting for you because, or I'm ranking you because we've run such an incredible campaign. Like, people can't deny it. And Bernie Sanders just seals the deal on that. Today, after a several-year-long struggle by activists and grassroots leaders, Mayor Bill de Blasio announced that the Landmark and Preservation Commission of New York City will confer historic landmark status on the Truesdell House in downtown Brooklyn. The house was home to Harriet and Thomas Lee Truesdell in the 1850s. The couple were anti-slavery activists who hosted other abolitionists in their home, and historians think the house was a place of early research for the Underground Railroad. The building, now called 227 Abolitionist Place, will become a heritage center that will teach visitors about abolitionist movements in Brooklyn. 
27-year-old Javier Castillo Maradiaga has lived in the country since he was seven, but three times in the past week, it seemed ICE was going to deport him, flying him back and forth between New York and a deportation staging facility in Louisiana, despite the current 100-day deportation moratorium. His family and community who have been rallying behind him are now hopeful that he will be back in New York once the blizzard has passed, although it is not clear whether he will be able to return home or be sent back to a detention center. He's currently still in Louisiana. Mara Diaga lived in the Bronx with his family until December 2019 when the NYPD stopped and frisked him for jaywalking. After he spent two days in jail, New York City's Department of Corrections turned Mara Diaga into ICE. New York City says it is a sanctuary city that would not hand over undocumented residents charged with minor crimes to ICE, but the policy was never fully binding and hasn't prevented NYPD and ICE collaboration. When Javier was nine, he was served an order of deportation despite the fact that his parents both have temporary protected status. Mara Diago was a DACA recipient, but when his status expired in 2019, he did not reapply, wary that if provided with his information, ICE would deport him. His fear came true later that year. Here's a clip of Javier's mother, Alma Maradiaga, a nutritional clinic worker in the city, speaking at a Sunday rally for Javier in the Bronx. I sleep. Stop bullying my son. Stop bullying my family. Stop bullying my community. My community needs us. Check out coverage on Maradiaga's situation on independent.org. When we come back, we'll be speaking with Molly Simmons, an organizer with the Sex Workers Outreach Program in Brooklyn about sex work during the pandemic. Sometimes I might see red, as red as pants of Santa's. But when I'm feeling mad, I grab my paints and grab my canvas. Use my brush to find some answers, always teaching on the campus. Or telling tales like mangas that are beefing like I'm Angus. I focus on my paintbrush, don't need hangups. Like a stalactite, my multicolored paintings act like magic. That's a fact of life, you have to understand this. Because I want us to start acting right. As much as I love canvas, y'all, the world is more than black and white. Let's paint the future real bright with the faith of Martin Luther. It feels right. Let's paint the future real bright with the faith of Martin Luther. That was Paint the Future by Ivy and Shirashu featuring Samus. I'm Olivia Riggio with the independent New York City's progressive newspaper and website. I'm filling in this week for John Tarleton, the Indies editor-in-chief. You'll be able to find the February print edition of the independent in our red and white news boxes across the city next Tuesday, February 9th, and you can follow our latest reporting online at independent.org. That's I-N-D-Y-P-E-D-P-E-N-D-E-N-T. Org. I've been working on a story about sex workers during the pandemic for this upcoming February issue. Sex work is a wide umbrella term covering people who work full, si full service on the streets to those who do online webcam work. Over the past year, the growth and glamorization of subscriber-based sites like OnlyFans have allowed influencers to share explicit content for money. And COVID's economic effects have led to new people entering the sex work world as part of the gig economy. Meanwhile, amid a saturated market, we see increased censorship and criminalization of sex workers and large gaps and who is able to earn an income as a sex worker and who is struggling to survive and stay safe amid the pandemic. The Brooklyn chapter of the Sex Workers Outreach Program, or SWAP, was formed in 2019. This past year, the, the group fundraised for mutual aid for sex workers and raised over $160,000. Here to talk with us about Brooklyn SWAP's organizing and the struggles sex workers have been facing is Molly Simmons, a full-service sex worker and sex work organizer in New York City. Hi, Molly. Thanks for joining us tonight. Hi, Olivia. Thank you so much for having me. So first, let's talk about the work that Brooklyn Swap does. Um, what have you been doing and go into the mutual aid work it's been doing this past year? Um, yeah, so Swap Brooklyn is relatively new in terms of um, organizations. We were founded in October of 2019. Um, and actually, just before the pandemic really broke in New York City and things started to shut down, we had just had our first big event, which was a fundraiser for March 3rd, and we raised funds for our own crisis relief fund and for Lysistrata, um, a national 
crisis relief fund. Um, and only a few days after that, uh, everything started to shut down and we really had to pivot and realize that most of 2020 was going to be spent in, in sort of crisis relief mode. And we really shifted all our gears to focus on being able to take care of people through the pandemic. Um, so we have a lot of, a lot, we have several different things that we offer, you know, we, um, we have membership, which offers community support. We have support groups. Um, we have skill shares and offer training. Sometimes uh, we try to act as a referral network and connect people to sex worker friendly resources, whether it's doctors or lawyers or tax preparers or psychologists, things like that. Um, our most widely known effort is our mutual aid fund. Um, we were very lucky um, at the start of the pandemic. Our GoFundMe got a lot of traction, and um, we were able to raise a, quite a big amount of money in a short amount of time. And um, we still um, – there is a dramatic decrease in the amount of money that we're receiving from that, but we still are able to sort of, like, keep things going, and we've been able to um, keep our mutual aid fund up and running now for almost one year, uh, March 16th, I think it will be one year. Uh, so that's probably the most well-known thing that we're known for. Um, we also recently launched our Patreon, which not only um, is a fundraising avenue for us, but it's an educational resource for the general community. And also we're kind of using it as an opportunity to create paid opportunities for sex worker artists and writers and things like that. And um, in 2021, we are um, looking at some pretty big initiatives. Obviously, we keep our mutual aid fund going. We also have a street outreach program. Sorry, I forgot to say. Um, I think we're in our eighth month of our street outreach program. So every Friday, we provide harm reduction supplies and hot food um, to um, communities in Brooklyn. And um, in 2021, probably our uh, two of our like biggest newer um, Goals are revamping the PROS network, um, which used to exist here in New York City and exists in other places, which is a referral network for sex worker-friendly resources, um, and then also the Coalition for Decriminalization. So we um, have some really um, exciting and timely uh, decriminalization work coming up, especially given the assembly vote that happened today on the Walking Well Trans Bill. Yeah, I wanted to actually go into that vote today. Um, so that is a big victory for sex workers and sex work advocates. What are the implications of that victory now that the Walking While Trans bill has been repealed? Yeah, so it's huge. Um, for those who are unfamiliar, the Walking While Trans bill um, uh, was actually like, a, I'm, not, I'm probably not going to use all the appropriate legal jargon, but it was like, um, an addition into the criminal code that allowed people to be arrested for loitering for the purposes of prostitution, right? Um, and that's so broad. So what it ended up being is um, police in unfairly targeting um, trans women, largely black trans women, um, and arresting them solely based on the how they look because the assumption is that they must be loitering, quote-unquote, for the purposes of prostitution. Um, so... That's just one of the ways that, like, um, stigma and transphobia affects our uh, our community. And, of course, it, like, needlessly puts people in contact with the criminal injustice system, which, if they are already, like, marginalized in any type of way, is only going to make them more marginalized and make their lives so much more difficult. Um, so this was a really exciting uh, – this is a really exciting, like, victory um, for us, um, just for, like, transparency. Like, SWAT Brooklyn was not involved in the organizing against, in the fight against that. Not that we wouldn't want to be, but just that that was in sort of in play by other groups before we got on the scene. So we're super grateful um, to all the individuals and all the organizations that put in a lot of hours to get this bill repealed. And we really think that this is the momentum I, we really think that like this is going to give us the momentum that we need um, to one combat the equality model that's currently be, being proposed by Senator Liz Krueger and backed by um, 
some anti-trafficking organizations here in New York City, um, but not only combat that narrative, but also um, push for the full decriminalization of sex work um, in 2021. So, yeah, this was um, this was a really amazing victory, but it's like it's just one step, you know. Um, uh, and I so I want to like really allow ourselves to like feel the joy and the celebration of this victory and then also use the momentum from this victory to like catapult us um, into um, greater impact into our community. I want to go into a little bit more about the legislation with the equality model and different models um, a little bit later on. But first, I want um, to sort of paint a picture of what sex workers are dealing with right now. What are sex workers who work mainly in person with clients dealing with during this time of the pandemic? And has unemployment or other aid been possible for them? Mm, so this is so, this is a great question. It's so broad, right? Like everybody's lived experience is so different, right? If you think just about like in-person sex workers, that covers such a wide spectrum, right? We have um, people who work on the street. We have independent providers who advertise online. We have full-service sex workers. We have doms who work in dungeons. We have massage parlors, you know. There's such a, a broad, I just want to, like, speak to the broad array of experiences that are represented in sex workers who see people in person. Because already we've got, like, varying different types of identity and marginalization and perhaps, like, relative privilege or um, access. Um, so there's a wide variety of people that are covered under that, like, phrasing. Um, but I can say pretty confidently and pretty generally that, like, everybody has been hit so hard by COVID. Um, obviously, like, some people are, like, able to, like, make it through. Um, some people... Uh, are impacted a little bit less, but I think everybody has been like greatly impacted. Um, and for most people, government services like um, unemployment are not available, right? I do know some people that have like, um, you know, received stimulus checks or something like that. Um, the like the one-time stimulus checks that were sent out, but I know that like, um, at least in my experience, um, the large majority of sex workers have were not able to access unemployment because we work in a criminalized industry um, and have to work really hard to avoid being seen in that criminalized industry, which disallows us from accessing like vital government services when there's a pandemic that is like severely affecting everyone's income. Mm hmm. And so you did mention the equality model before. Is that the same thing or similar to the Nordic model of sex work? Can you describe it a little bit? Yes. Thank you for asking that. This is the, the, the demon that goes by many names. The equality model, the Nordic <laughs> model, the Swedish model, the end demand model. Um, it's all the same, um, although it's pretty much the same. And these are all methods of partial decriminalization, which translates to partial criminalization, like continued criminalization, where in theory, um, only clients and managers, what people often think of as pimps, are arrested, but sex workers are not arrested and in fact connected to vital resources that might help them exit the industry. Um, and we've seen for literally decades that this is just, uh, you know, not a, a beneficial piece of legislation and, in fact, causes so much harm to sex workers by increasing stigma, um, creating harsher, more coercive working conditions, like limiting people's agency and freedom and how and where and when they want to work. Um, doesn't necessarily lead to an overall decrease in arrests for sex workers, leads to an increased arrest of um, black and brown clients, but not necessarily white clients, um, and doesn't actually very, like, it never actually lives up to the idea that it's going to give people vital resources to access, exit the industry if they so choose. Um, so, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm like, official SWAT Brooklyn statement, we are not supporters of the Nordic model slash the equality Got model. It. 
And um, Got it. We, yeah, we just know that full decriminalization is the only thing that truly empowers sex workers and can, um, yeah, like lower rates of incarceration, decrease stigma, give people more freedom to enter or exit or live their lives as they so choose. And also, um, because this is about to come up, you know, one of the driving ideologies behind the equality model is that um, that they want to, you know, help reduce rates of sex trafficking, which doesn't occur under the equality model. And actually, full decriminalization um, makes the differences between consensual sex work and sex trafficking, like, so apparent that full decriminalization is actually also a really valuable method for combating cases of sex trafficking. Now, we're going to have to close out this segment soon, but I do want to give you a chance to plug Brooklyn Swap. Um, Where can people find out more and get involved with the work you're doing? Oh, yes. So you can find us on Instagram or Twitter at Swap Brooklyn, um, S-O-W-P, Brooklyn. Our website is swapbrooklyn.org. if you are a sex worker listening to this, like, please reach out to us for membership or if you need assistance, we're here for you. Um, and we can always use donations for outreach to our GoFundMe for a mutual aid fund um, and for a variety of different things and keep the, on the lookout for our decrim work um, because we're going to have some really exciting ways for the general public to get involved, too. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight, Molly, organizer with Brooklyn Swap. Up next, we have the Independent's own Ted Ham, who will be talking to us about Andrew Yang and the New York City mayoral race. That was Fire by Waxahachie. I'm Olivia Riggio with the Independent New York City's progressive newspaper and website. You're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM. Before we continue with our second segment, I want to encourage everyone who can do so to give generously to WBAI and help keep shows like this on the air. You can give by calling 516-620-3602 or going straight to give the number to WBAI.org. Again, that's 516-620-3602 or give to WBAI.org. You can make a one-time donation or better yet, sign up to be a WBAI buddy for $10 per person per month or more and help keep WBAI and shows like this one on the air. Andrew Yang, entrepreneur and former Democratic presidential candidate, entered the already crowded New York City mayoral race earlier this month, or last month at this point, because we're in February. And whether it be for his progressive policies like establishing a universal basic income and appointing a civilian police commissioner or or his less progressive ones like building a casino on Governor's Island, Yang is dominating headlines. He recently gained negative press for focusing for forcing his campaign volunteers to sign non-disclosure agreements after supporting a movement to end NDAs in politics last year. His universal basic income proposal and stance on decriminalizing sex work have gained him the interest of many progressives, but many are also skeptical. He has publicly called the Palestinian-led boycott, divestment and sanctions or BDS movement fascist. His campaign manager, Bradley Tusk, who was also Michael Bloomberg's campaign manager in 2009, made 
made $100 million helping Uber infiltrate the city. In short, Yang is hard to pin down. Here to help us contextualize this multidimensional candidate is Ted Ham, who has been covering the mayoral race and has an article on Yang up on the independent.org. Thanks for joining us, Ted. Sure thing. Good to be here. Andrew Yang gained the attention of a lot of progressives during his bid to be the Democratic presidential nominee, especially because of his universal basic income proposal. But then, as you wrote, there is the other side of the coin where he very much represents a Wall Street capitalist brand of liberalism. What do you think his voting base is going to look like? Uh, Well, that's a good question. Uh, You know, certainly by name recognition, and certainly to outsiders who are uh, not familiar with the way New York City elections work, he may seem like he's um, a clear front runner, but uh, his base is it's hard to say because primaries in New York City, especially, um, are largely driven by unions um, and also by older voters. And it doesn't seem like he's going to ha- get a lot of traction. I, cer- I, don't, I certainly don't think he's going to get any. any union endorsements he's just too much he's too new he's also too close to wall street as you were just describing um and and the unions typically like people they know uh and they can uh rely on and so someone like stringer scott stringer for example the comptroller um is much more likely to get most of those endorsements um and then older voters you know just someone talking they're not familiar with and and sort of um talking a new game um you know i don't know how much that's gonna he's gonna appeal to them it's certainly in certain communities he will uh in the asian communities throughout the city in sunset park where i am now or uh flushing and chinatown and so on um so you know he, he does he has um appeal uh and there's newer voters coming in all the time um that there's been a significant increase over the last four years in the number of votes so one thing that's interesting to take to sort of uh, try to game out um is how many votes there will be in the primary so let me just run these numbers by real quick uh in 2013 in the last time there was an open race the one which de blasio won and against several candidates there were upwards of 700 thousand votes in that race uh, in the primary um and then just this past november or i'm sorry this past june when the uh presidential primary uh rolled around and extended through the summer really uh the at the end of it the, the final tally was um just over 800,000 ballots counted so there were 35,000 rejected, but so 810,000 counted. So if you just split the difference on that, you get about 750,000 people maybe turn out. Um, it could be more, it could be a little bit less, but probably not. Uh, and so, you know, then you got to sort of do the math and say, well, how's, who's going to get to 375,000 um, with ranked choice voting? Uh, you know, so I don't, I don't know that those, there's that many votes there for Yang. It's hard to say that. I mean, you can see, you can see Stringer being a number two on many different um, ballots. Um, you know, there's Eric Adams is, in, is a, a recognized name and has a lot of, of money, just like Stringer. Uh, so there's, it's no guarantee that Yang's going to win by any means. But that's, you know, he's also doing something else, which. I'm focused on the article, which is shaking up the race in terms of getting some ideas in motion, um, which the other candidates really weren't doing up until Yang jumped in. Right. We, we've been speaking about that as well. Um, when we spoke last week, we were talking about how he already is talking about his policies, where some people have even yet to update their website. Um, so do you think this gives him an advantage, kind of laying out um, – what his campaign is going to be all about early? Sure. I mean, he, he can roll, rattle off a new um, policy proposal that, you know, some people hadn't really thought of before, as far as I've, you know, I've been around for a while now following this stuff. And I hadn't heard anyone talk about a civilian commissioner for the NYPD um, as meaning someone who won't come from the ranks, right? Just like the current, the previous two commissioners uh, were higher ups within the department and then got hired as a commissioner. That wouldn't happen um, with a civilian commissioner. So that's, you know, making a a proposal that hasn't really been heard before 
um, and you get headlines and discussion of that and make it, you put yourself in the center of the debate. Um, so yeah, he's, um, and he's good at that, right? He's, he's a good, he's savvy. He's charismatic. Uh, he's, um, you know, does well in front of the camera, um, and so on. So, uh, now the other candidates have to figure out how to position themselves, how to, and you know, some of them have policies, but they're buried on their websites for whatever reason. Um, and Stringer, for example, uh, he gained a lot of, um, a good, re good reception from environmental activists, climate change activists with, uh, his, uh, his plan 350.org, uh, was very, uh, effusively praising it. Um, but then you go to his website and it's kind of hard to figure out where, where it is. Um, so, you know, I don't know, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's, that's, that all can change, uh, quickly. Um, but, uh, until Yang came along, people weren't even really, um, uh, trying to, p to distinguish themselves by policy. They were sort of positioning themselves by their bio and their credentials and so on. And that mm -hmm. stuff only goes so far. Mm -hmm. And you've been mentioning Stringer, but who else do you think Yang's top competitors are? And what does he have that they don't? And maybe vice versa as well. Mm, good question. Uh, well, I mean, I, I think everyone would say Stringer by virtue of having won uh, a citywide election twice uh, for Comptroller. And the first time out, he beat a very high profile figure, Elliot Spitzer. Um so he's a known entity uh, that who people have voted for. Now he's now he's not the most dynamic figure. Um, so uh, he does he lacks that in, in relation to Yang. Uh, he doesn't he's not hurting for money. Neither is Eric Adams, um, Brooklyn Borough President. And then um, on the left you have Diane Morales uh, pushing a social social housing agenda. Um, Maya Wiley is more progressive, more sort of in the um, de Blasio camp or not necessarily um, wanting to align herself directly with de Blasio, but is not very different um, than de Blasio in many, in many of her proposals. Um, so um, she's not her, her – she'll have enough money to, to be competitive, but she's not, ro she's not rolling in the dough. Um, then there's Ray McGuire. He's definitely rolling uh, with the big bucks from um, the 1%. She's a city group uh, executive, longtime executive. Um, so uh, – and he's, his policies are a little um, vague in terms of what he, he keeps calling for investment, 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 but he's not really saying exactly what, how that's going to play out. Um, so, uh, he's, you know, Yang's in the middle of all that. Um, and as I say in the article, he's sometimes in left field, sometimes he's in right field. Um, who knows where he's coming from? Uh, and that's a, and that's a, you know, that's a concern for many people is like, you know, who, who is this guy? Um, <laughs> right. That's, as mm -hmm. I said, with the unions and others, you know, who, where's this guy been? He hasn't voted that often. I neither, neither has it's in local election, but neither has McGuire. Um, mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, we, we don't know what he would do if he gets into office, um, He'd be dealing with a, 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 a feisty city council that's likely to have some DSA um, members uh, in its incoming class of 35 of 51 seats are up for grabs, and there's going to be a lot of um, left-leaning or fully left candidates in there. So it's not it's not like Yang would just be able to steamroll um, whatever agenda he might want to pursue. Uh, so um, – We'll see. I mean, he's making commitments on sex, uh, decriminalizing sex work. That's a good thing. I mean, that's what Ron Kim said. Some of them, Ron King from, Kim from uh, Flushing, said in the, as I quote him in the article, that you know he's making that as helping to destigmatize the issue in his community. Um, and just was your last guest was talking about. Um, so uh, that's a good thing, right? So you know, there mm -hmm. are ways in which maybe he's not um, the ideal candidate, but but his candidacy. Uh, is is good for the race in in, in many respects. Mm -hmm. Who do Yang voters? Who are they? What do they look like right now? People who are already backing him, and could his mixed bag of ideas ultimately be an advantage with them? It's hard to say because he hasn't really. Uh, I mean, but he didn't really wasn't in the race by the you know there was no, the Democratic primary in New York was um, a foregone conclusion. Um, when he was running, um, he does, you know, some 
he does deserve some credit for helping. Uh, he bankrolled the campaign to um, uh, get the election back on the ballot, right? So uh, that, that Cuomo was trying to kick to remove it from the ballot, the presidential race, and the fact that Bernie that that motivated Bernie's voters to come out that did help the left. So. Um, I'm not saying that that's a reason to vote for Yang. It's just something he's done that's um, uh, been helpful to the the, the democratic uh, socialist wave in, in one respect. Um, so uh, you know, it's hard to but it's hard to say who's going to come. Who's definitely? I mean, I think you know, it's not very, New York City politics is very tribal. It's clear that um, Asian voters will likely vote for uh, for Yang in, in significant numbers. Um, you know, McGuire is quite, quite clearly pitching himself to black voters, um, and and Adams, um, to lesser extent Wiley, I would say, uh, and 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 so on. So you know, there's that's the easiest um, category to say you'll probably get voters here and voters from what this and that group. Um, but uh, you know, there's new, there's the sort of casual voter um, that may not. Like Yang have voted frequently in uh, local elections, but they may say, "Hey, let's let's you know, I like Yang for whatever reason. He's got um, personality. We need somebody in in city hall with that. I don't know how many. I don't know how much <laughs> numerically that translates into, but um, that's um, you know, we'll, we'll, it remains to be seen. But um, we'll, we'll, he'll he'll be making his case for sure. He's going to be in the headlines. He's going to have plenty of money." Um, and so now it's up to the other candidates to try to um, figure out how, ways to knock him out. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight, Ted. Check out his article, Mercurial Andrew Yang Jumpstarts Drowsy NYC Mayor's Race on Independent.org. Up next, we'll be talking to Nick Powers, who recently published another article with The Independent on the QAnon conspiracy theory. That was People Have the Power by Patti Smith. I'm Olivia Virgio with The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. You're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM. On Inauguration Day, President Trump was supposed to save us from Satan-worshipping Democrats running underground-styled child sex trafficking rings, revealing the deep state cabal in an awakening called the storm that, of course, never happened. The QAnon conspiracy that began on the message board site 4chan in 2017 made claims that seemed too ridiculous to seep out from the fringe corners of the Internet. Yet the FBI has cited the far right Trump supporting community as a terrorist threat, which the Capitol Hill insurrection reiterated. Before President Biden's inauguration, a Colorado man named Cleveland Meredith Jr. drove to D.C. with heavy weaponry in his car, threatening to shoot House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in the head on live TV. But Meredith is not alone. He's just one member of this group that has been growing in numbers and formidability over the past few years. QAnon is entering the mainstream and the House of Representatives. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia's 14th District subscribes to QAnon's beliefs. Independent reporter Nicholas Powers recently published an article about the group and its weaponization of anti-Semitic imagery to push its conspiracies. Here, uh, He's here to talk with us today about what he called the monstrous sticky ball of the QAnon conspiracy. Thanks for joining us tonight, Nick. Hey, thank you so much for having me and, and for entertaining the sticky, gooey ball of conspiracy theory. <laughs> 
so excited to talk about this sticky gooey ball. But uh, so like you and said, Donald Trump was supposed to save us um, from child predators who rule the media and government, gave us COVID through uh, 5G cell phone towers. How does a conspiracy like this gain enough traction to actually lead people to physically go attack the Capitol, drive to the inauguration with guns in their cars? We're at the point where a survey found that the majority of Republicans are saying it's true or mostly true. It reminds me... The answer lies in this quote from Octavio Paz. He was uh, an incredibly um, powerful um, poet of Mexico. And he said, the danger of literature is not in the content, but the passion of its readers. So it's Mm. less the content of QAnon, which, you know, measured against other conspiracy theories is kind of mundane and banal, but it's in the passion of the people who hear it who are thirsty for some explanation of the world that um, reorients them as the center protagonist of their lives. So if they're feeling like they're slipping down, you know, a, a glass wall and that they're descending into meaninglessness or that the world is changing too fast around them, you know, that they're bitter, that the media no longer reflects them and is now diverse and rainbow and that they're becoming a minority in their own country then that anger seeks an outlet. And that anger is the emotional force that makes a rather kind of banal and not very interesting conspiracy theory um, into such a motivating force that people will lock and load, put a Matrix-style you know, stash of weapons in their car, and drive across the country to right this great wrong. And I think that's at the core of it. It's a story in which you get to be the hero you get to be, you know, player number one and, you know, your, you know, gun simulator, one, you know, one person, you know, <laughs> gunplay. And um, and they show up. And to be honest, I'm, I'm actually familiar with this type of thinking. Um, when I was, uh, it was in the 90s, I was in Har- Hartford, Connecticut, and there was uh, a Nation of Islam mosque. And I remember going there a lot. I, I never joined the Nation of Islam because I couldn't deal with the bow ties. Like I had some fashion self-respect. And I wasn't into actually bean pies because uh, they tasted horrible. But I would hang around. And when I was hanging around, there was a lot of conspiracy theory. I mean, some of it typical stupid anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, but others as well. You know, the Bilderbergs group, the Illuminati, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember feeling compelled by it. And, again, what drove me to even let, like, give it an ear was I wanted a community. I wanted to be around these other men of color. I wanted to feel powerful and and belonged and loved. And I was willing to put my skeptical brain in the refrigerator so that I could be part of the team. But it always just crossed the line for me. And then, you know, eventually I I just felt that my self-respect and then also like, you know, my actual Jewish friends, I couldn't betray the people in my life or my own self-respect to believe this, you know, these conspiracy theories. So I was lucky that at that young age, I had real loving relationships and I had inherited a sense of skepticism from my parent, my mom, that made sure I didn't get too deep into that world. And I saw the folly in the dead end and I pulled back. But I also lost a lot of friends because I could see them going further and further into that world. Um, because they were wounded and they and they needed the sense of self-righteousness to almost like a crutch. But instead of the crutch underneath your armpit, it's a crutch for your brain. And so they needed that because they were, you know, they were walking around hurt. So I get it. I understand why people need conspiracy theories. But in the end, they get hurt and then the people who they target wind up getting hurt. Right. And we've been talking about, as we've been discussing QAnon over the past week um, to prepare for our segment today. Um, We've been talking about confirmation bias and how people are just, you know, a lot of times just going to believe the the information that they agree with. And, um, and, you know, when someone is presented with facts that go counter to what they want to believe or what they do believe, um, they kind of just shut down. And, um, and, and I think that that's been kind of apparent since, since 2017, when QAnon first began, I mean, the first QAnon post was about, um, I believe 
Q said that Hillary was going to be arrested in 2017. And that obviously never happened. But people instead were saying, oh, the problem is with us. We must have misinterpreted that um, that prediction. It can't be Q. Um, so do you think the I mean, clearly nothing. The storm did not happen on Inauguration Day. A lot of people were discouraged. A lot of people felt bamboozled by QAnon, but some people are still subscribing to it. So do you think the embarrassment of its failed prediction um, caused a lot of these followers to be more cautious in the future? Or do you think um, we're going to see that confirmation bias where people are just going to make excuses and continue believing what they want to believe? I think the answer to that is in the image that is in QAnon itself, the storm. I think this storm obviously turned out to be in a, a mirage, an illusion. It didn't happen. But the overall weather pattern always creates another storm. So is there going to be some kind of apocalyptic storm where, you know, the guards come in and flesh out the satanic pedophiles? Um, no, because the satanic pedophiles don't exist. But <laughs> the the real storm is going to be the next brewing cauldron in the sky, uh, in the kind of media uh, landscape of conspiracy theory. So the conspiracy theory itself is a storm, not what it predicts as the final, you know, you know, the final decision, the final, the final quote unquote solution. It's, it's the conspiracy theory and it's driven by the wet weather patterns of uh, media uh, silos um, social displacement, anxiety, uh, definitely economic inequality, um, intellectual laziness that is coupled with an incredible amount of American exceptionalism and racial, gender, and class entitlement. And then on top of that, an intense fetishization of guns and violence that is just dripping through almost every sitcom, every movie, every song, you know, it's just constantly dripping to our brains that the way that you settle questions is with violence and particularly guns. So you add all those factors up and that causes the weather pattern that creates a storm of conspiracy theory. So we saw this storm hit a kind of climax and, and dissipate a little bit. Some people are walking away, blinking kind of stumbling out, you know, and then other people are going to ride this out until they get to the next storm. Because conspiracy theory is less about the actual target of the conspiracy than a, than a way of thinking. And the way of thinking mm -hmm. can replace villains with another villain. It can, but, it, but it all revolves around you as the hero of the story who's going to right or wrong. And so as long as you stay in the center and your community stays in the center, the villains can have another face. You know, they could be reptiles, alien reptile lizards hiding under a human mask. You know, they could be the, the construction workers putting up 5G. Uh, you know, maybe ne the next day it's going to be Hollywood executives or maybe, you know, clowns or delivery mm -hmm. people are going to be secretly poisoning our food. I mean, I don't know. Like, you take a pick. The villains are going to change. Right. But the, the, and... the storm is the next storm is coming. And in there, you did mention the the phrase final solution. And that leads me to my next question. Let's talk about the anti-Semitic imagery and ideologies that QAnon is using. There is the literal fact that there were insurrectionists at the Capitol wearing pro-Holocaust saying sweatshirts. But there's also mm -hmm. anti-Semitic propaganda more generally and like, I guess, the storyline. So they're scapegoating this elite cabal, um, controlling the government and media, killing children. Um, these were things that Hitler said about Jews during the Holocaust. So why are these anti-Semitic propagandistic tactics so effective and so dangerous? Uh, one is a good argument of the King Scott, the brother who wrote this book. He called Hitler's, Hitler's willing executioners. And his basic theory was that um, that the Nazis weren't these kind of like psychopathic, you know, um, psychopaths, that they were actually kind of they came out of the soil of German culture, which was tr deeply, deeply drenched in anti-Semitism. So, you know, this wasn't, you know, just simply like a, a one political party that, that went off the range. And so in that way, I, I think that. Um, our culture is implicitly drenched with anti-Semitism and then really all forms of racism. And so it's not surprising that these motifs then reappear in the conspiracy theories because they're kind of coming, they're, they're being drawn organically from the soil of bigotry. 
And so the flowers of evil that are being plucked, you know, um, by the conspiracy theories, you know, it's just it's very easy for them to to reach. And you're right. Like the, some of the basic elements are there. They control the media, you know, whatever, whoever they are. Right. So before it was the elders of Zion or the elders of the, pro, the protocols of the elders of Zion. And that was like the 19th century uh, forged uh, track that a lot of the anti-Semites then drew their inspiration from. And in it, uh, Jews control the media. They were egging on workers' division. And then not in the protocols of the elders of Zion, but a separate anti-Semitic image was the drinking of children's blood or using their blood for, uh, uh, I think it was Passover, unleavened bread mm-hmm. for Passover. And again, you know, you look at QAnon, you know, the, the satanic pedophiles, they control the media. They're egging on uh, cultural division with Black Lives Matter. So uh, they drink children's blood. They're literally, you know, stirring a big ladle in a pot filled with little baby bits and pieces and they're pouring little baby ears and toes into someone's soup bowl. I mean, so what happens is is that even if they're not explicitly targeting Jews, they're using the same motifs. And and it's what the shared element is, the narrative element, the, the the bridges, is it's an eliminationist narrative. It's saying that those others are so evil that they actually kill babies. So they themselves must be killed. And that's the thing that people are consistently missing, is that this is really a call for justifying murder and for making murder um, uh, an actual moral good. And so one of the things I did, uh, there was a class I was teaching on on, uh, the literature of class consciousness. And so we looked at excerpts of Mein Kampf. And that's exactly what the Nazi ideology tries to do, is that it tries to make the murder of innocent people into a moral good by saying that these people Mm -hmm. are infesting Europe, or in the case of black people, that they're not human, that they're more monkeys than men and women. So, you know, they're animals or that they're a secret cabal, but they're not human. They're not human. And so if you kill someone who's not human, you're pruning the tree of life of its dead branches so that the true master race can continue flourishing up until the stars. So mm-hmm. it's an eliminationist narrative. And that's why we have a majority, the representative majority uh, green, you know, basically caught on tape. And, and what's what people should pay attention to is the pride that one takes in talking of the murder of other people, the joy, right. the intoxicating rage. I love killing I love killing Democrats. I love killing them. Mm-hmm. You know, they should die. We need to take them out. And so that's right. the goal of that eliminationist rhetoric, to make that, that face joyful at murder. And that taps into a very, very base animal desire that unfortunately is, you know, part of our evolutionary heritage. Now, I want to continue this conversation, but I'm going to have to cut you off. Um, but for our listeners, to read Nick's piece, um, it's called QAnon Recycles Anti-Semitic Imagery to Sell Self-Hatred. Um, you can visit independent.org and you can learn more about QAnon and its different tactics. That just about wraps up this week's edition of the Independent News Hour. I'm Olivia Riggio. Thanks to John Tarleton and Amber Gregorian for helping me put this show together. We'll be back same time next week with John Tarleton as your host. Have a good night, everyone. <laughs>